Namo tasa bhagavato harato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami I was just outside, walking between this building and the next, and it just started snowing, just as I went out the door. By the time I made my way back, a little bit of snow had already built up, just enough to notice. It was very peaceful. It's amazing, actually, how peaceful it is here. and unthreatening. There's no civil war, there's no famine. There's the tussles that there are in the world are fairly, fairly remote from us here in this place. The deer all seem very calm even though it's hunting season. We have shelter. We're in a nice warm Dhamma hall. We are plentifully supplied with clothing, food, and medicine. We have all the requisites. And yet we're not happy. We keep finding ways to make ourselves unhappy. So no matter how good we have it, this is the nature of our minds. It's never good enough. Or no matter how good it is, there's always some fly in the ointment, some imperfection that, that catches our attention some rough edge that we can't help but rub our fingers on and hurt ourselves and suffer. Most of the suffering tends to be around other people. It's a paradox in a way. We are the ultimate social species and yet we hate living with people. We can't stand it. They drive us crazy. And if we find a chance to be alone, get away from all those people, then we find something even worse. Our own mind. Right there, just waiting for us like some horrible spider to jump on us as soon as we try to find a little peace and quiet. So we're, we're caught in something of a dilemma. 
with these nearly perfect conditions. And, you know, even if things aren't totally perfect, they're pretty darn good. Pretty, pretty top shelf as far as the human realm is concerned. We don't really have a whole lot of physical trouble other than the ordinary trouble that comes along with a human body. So our troubles are really just mental. And this, of course, is the Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's message. We are experts at making ourselves suffer. We can take any set of circumstances and find a way to suffer therein. And the suffering, the dissatisfaction of our circumstances always motivates us to find something else to do or be or have or know or consume uh, to hopefully relieve that dissatisfaction. This happens on many subtle and gross levels. In the larger world, of course, we can see everybody else rushing around, trying to get their latest iPhone, or trying to vote those guys in or these guys out, or um, trying to arrange their job or their car or their life in various ways to try to make happiness somehow come about. So this dissatisfaction is of what's driving the world, it's what's making the world, the human world, spin. And we've come here to try to try out the alternative, the Buddha's alternative. And one of the keys is to see that because we're so connected to this human realm, that because we're so dependent and interwoven with other people, that there's no real escape to be found by either avoiding people or no refuge to be found by trying to absorb into people. We're, we're obliged to stand someplace in between in relationship to other people, but not uh, not so entangled with them that we, we lose sight of what's important and what's actually possible. So the Buddha asks us to not take our beliefs about ourselves and others so seriously. We were talking about suttas earlier today. I asked what what people's favorite sutta was. And one of the ones that's mentioned, also one of my favorites, is the sutta and the characteristic of not-self. And the wonderful thing about that sutta, along with many others, is it's not a recitation of something that we should believe. The Buddha says things like, 
form is not self. If form were self, then form would not lead to affliction. And one might be able to say in regard to form, let my form be thus, or let my form not be thus. And so the first statement, form is not self, sounds like something like a, like a command that you should just believe this. This is a, an assertion of, a, of a, some sort of ontological truth. But the structure of the sutta doesn't support that, that notion. It's just a turn of phrase. It's like a preposition. Suppose that form is not self. How can you test that idea? If form were self, and of course this extends to, to form our bodies, but also feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. If these things were self, or characteristic of a self, or belonged to a self, belonged to me, then presumably they wouldn't make me suffer. I wouldn't find them unsatisfactory. Because they're, they're, they're me, right? How can, how can the me be unsatisfactory? If anything, it should be that which gets satisfied, but not itself the source of its own dissatisfaction. So if one's going to take ownership or possession of something, it ought to be something which is a source of satisfaction, or at least a source of neutrality. But all of these aggregates, we can't make them what we want. We don't have control over them. We can influence how they get arranged, maybe, sometimes. Even though our bodies aren't really our bodies. We can move the arms and legs, we can make the head move, we can say things with the body. But we can't decide how fast to digest our food or how what temperature the hands should be or whether or not we get ill or get sick. The real essential qualities of the body aren't, aren't up to us. We don't really even have any idea how this body came about. We just sort of recognized one day that here we are, here's, the, here's this body, and so we, we took it for ourselves. And the same thing goes for our thoughts. Mental objects. For the most part, thoughts are constituted by mental imagery, associations, phrases maybe, words. We talk to ourselves. And it seems like those thoughts belong to somebody, it must be me. They seem to be coming from a source. We assume that source is us. But they have the same characteristic as the body does. We can't really choose to not think a thought that's being thought. We can't shut off necessarily a stream of unhappy thoughts in midstream. We can't decide, well, I never want to think an unhappy thought again. I never want to suffer again, so I'm just going to never choose to think things that make me unhappy. If only it were so easy, like we would all be happy, we'd be doing something else right now, happily. 
But we've all seen that it doesn't really work that way. So later in that same sutta, the Buddha gives an instruction. He says, whatever form there is, or whatever feeling there is, whatever mental formations there are, whatever perceptions, and whatever consciousness, past, future, present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, whether far or near, all mental objects should be seen with right wisdom thus. This is not mine, I am not this, this is not myself. A kind of a formal way of saying, look, don't try not to take your th thoughts or your feelings or your perceptions personally. The problem with taking them personally is then they motivate action, they motivate speech, uh, they motivate mood, they motivate uh, further trains of thought. Since our suffering is mostly mental, the, the activity where suffering takes place is mostly happening at the mental level. So coming back to people, our interactions with other people will make us think things suppose things, imagine things, uh, imbue the motivations of others with uh, weight and significance and relevance and uh, affect, which may or may not be accurate. But these assessments in our minds, they're just mental objects. And like all, all mental objects, they have this characteristic of coming about due to causes and conditions, and therefore um, being subject to cessation and not totally under our control, not really our, our possession. It's simply something that we become aware of. There's a little mental, subtle mental volitional act in which we take possession of the thoughts as mine. But the Buddha is saying, all thoughts should be seen with right wisdom. This is not mine. So that's an interesting exercise to, to undertake. When a distressing thought appears in your mind, just whisper to yourself mentally, this is not mine. It's just here. But it's not me. It's just conditioned. And see what that does to the thought. See what it does to your relationship to the thought. It's not that the thought is necessarily a problem, or any thought is a problem, or any feeling or perception is a problem. The problem comes about when we take our perceptions, or our feelings, or our thoughts, to be characteristic of me, of myself of my, uh, somehow that I'm responsible and this is my thought and I have to take it very, very seriously. And that's natural. That's like the reflexive, reflexive, uh, uh, almost uh, knee-jerk, you might say, reaction 
to a thought that's coming up or a feeling coming up, we just assume that it's us, it's ours, and that we need to take it seriously. But if you practice with this teaching that the Buddha is giving in the Anatta Lakana Sutta, to actually consider this thought is just a thought. This feeling is its just a feeling. I'm very aware of this feeling, perhaps, but it doesn't really belong to me. I didn't, I didn't go looking for it and choose it to come up. It just, here it is. Thoughts do that too. They just kind of swim up into your mind. Maybe you're trying to follow your breath and then some thought comes along and you're dragged away. Or you're happily doing something in the kitchen and somebody walks in and then a bunch of thoughts start getting generated in your head because of that contact. So you can see, if you're, if you're mindful, you can see that your thoughts are coming up. Uh, they're being stimulated by the environment. And they don't, they're not something that you're choosing to do. So they're not really yours, they're just conditioned. And if you have the mindfulness, the presence of mind, to notice that, that conditioned genesis of thoughts, and reflect, just whisper to yourself, yeah, that's how thoughts are, not really me, not really mine. And you can do that to every element of the mental experience. When anger comes up, you can just see anger as phenomenal, not really personal. Or if fear comes up, it's possible to see fear as just fear. It doesn't feel good. One might not like it, but there it is. And it, it's going to fade. It won't last forever. And it's triggered by and conditioned by contact and prior conditioning. Totally understandable, but totally impersonal. In fact, it's so impersonal, it's kind of insulting. You know, it's like our, our, our emotional buttons get pushed and we're like a uh, like one of these old mechanical calculators where you press some buttons and turn a crank and you get an answer. So, you know, we think that we're, we're kind of these very subtle, you know, nuanced, uh, amazing conscious embodied consciousnesses. And we're just as predictable as a lawnmower. You know, we just, we're just... Uh, we're just mechanic. Our, our our thoughts, our feelings, they're just human thoughts and feelings, and they they <clears throat> for the most part they're just as uh, regulated by conditions as you know a, a, any computer program is. Just just programming. So if you look at your thoughts and your feelings as this impermanent and impersonal weather that you have to put up with, then what happens is you don't take the position of taking it so seriously that you unwittingly reinforce, elaborate, deepen the ruts of those phenomena. And the Buddha gives us many, many skillful techniques uh, 
to take advantage of the fact that our minds are conditioned. So rather than just being victims of conditioning, we can sort of turn tables on on our situation for the for for our whole life. For the most part, we've been laboring under this illusion that thoughts are self, feelings are self, mental formations are self, perceptions are self. And they all belong to me, along with the body. And then we were put it, we're kind of thrown into this position of having to defend ourselves and protect ourselves and make ourselves safe and get things for ourselves and satisfy ourselves. So we're kind of a slave to this uh, these these aggregates. And we're a slave to the conditioning that conditions the aggregates. And the Buddha's helping us become uh, kind of switch roles and become the masters. So rather than being victims of conditioning, what we become are the ones who do the conditioning. How do you condition your mind to abandon unwholesome states of mind? Say your mind is subject to depression or sadness, for example. Well, the way to do it is to watch your mind and notice what the mood is. And sooner or later you'll notice that uh, sadness is either absent or not very strong. And if you keep paying attention, then you'll notice that sadness gets stronger under some circumstances because of the weather or because someone said something to you or because a memory came up or whatever. But you'll see that it's, it, you know, it has its variability to it. It comes and goes. But there are some things that you do which make sadness or obsession with it um, lighten up. So if you if you do something like metta practice or uh, acts of generosity or maybe even just chanting, uh, listening to Dhamma talks, all the kinds of skillful things that it's possible to do as a practitioner, whether they're uh, really formal or uh, much more natural, real-life continuum. The intention to, to conduct oneself in a wholesome way, uh, it actually kind of lightens it up. It makes sadness less oppressive. And sometimes maybe even you'll feel a little sense of like happiness, which if you're really stuck with sadness, if you're really bought into the, the narrative that I'm a sad, depressed person, you might not want to really buy into the happiness because you know you'll just be disappointed. So the, the sadness can become a self-reinforcing uh, phenomenon if you don't recognize how to use mental conditions as they occur to condition wholesome future mental states. So this is uh, maybe a roundabout way of talking about the four right efforts. So unwholesome states of mind we're all subject to. When they come up, the right effort is to find some sort of means to abandon that unwholesome state of mind. So sadness is an unwholesome state of mind. Finding a way to abandon it means that it will, on account of your efforts, uh, become less, get, get weaker. And the more frequently you do that, the more diligently you do that, the more skilled you become at abandoning that unwholesome state of mind. And the same is true for anger, 
for fear, for envy, jealousy, bitterness, resentment, all the negative mind states. And it's also true for things like greed, lust, uh, avarice, you name it. A whole witch's brew of unwholesome mind states that we're subject to. Uh, they're all possible to abandon. We're not, we're not obliged to carry them around. We might not be very good at abandoning them. That's, that's, you, know, you start where you are and you try out different techniques and you find out what works and you keep getting better at it. So you can see this is a much different course of action. Rather than simply responding to our states of mind, taking them seriously and trying to cure them with uh, either em embracing them or running away from them. We simply see them as their conditioned nature. And if they're unwholesome, we try to abandon them, try to set them aside. Uh, a really great technique is simply to substitute something wholesome. And sometimes it seems really artificial and it seems really kind of maybe even corny or you know, futile or whatever, but if you if you persist, eventually you'll hit upon a combination of techniques or a particular technique that works often enough to give you a sense of the possibilities. So abandoning the unwholesome is something that uh, is really worth taking seriously, really trying to endeavor to do that whenever you see that your mind is caught in an unwholesome state. Even just knowing that your mind is in an unwholesome state is a step in the right direction. So there's the unwholesome state and then there's a part of the mind that recognizes, oh yeah, there it is again. There's this depression or this sadness or this anger or this whatever. Familiar old companion, been there for a while. Comes and goes, here it is again. And, you know, and you just watch it, like weather, keep an eye on it. If you can do something to abandon it, then that's worth doing. If you've got the mindfulness and, and the space, uh, and certainly don't do anything to make it worse. Don't try to justify it. Don't, uh, don't rationalize it. Don't say, well, it's, you know, of course I'm angry. You know, that guy did this. Uh, just see it, see it for what it is. I mean, it's, it's arisen due to causes and conditions. It's just an unwholesome mind state. That's all it is. And you, know, you might not like it. You might wish it weren't here, but you're kind of stuck with it. And but you can work with it. You can always redirect attention away from any a tendency for the mind to elaborate on that unwholesome mind state and direct your attention towards something more neutral or positive. One thing that can be positive is just to notice what else is here besides that mind state. Think right now, what else is here? There's some peace. It's quiet, safe. No bombs falling, no gunfire, for the moment.
but the moment is all we really have, and and that's one of the one of the real tricks about uh, practice. What the mind gets angry about, or sad about, or bitter, envious, or whatever, fearful, is almost never actually present right now. Or if it is, it's like one percent of the time or less. Mostly it has to do with things that happened in the past or things that might happen in the future. But what's actually right here, right now, along with mental content and mental fabrications, there's also just this field of nothing particularly problematic, called the field of okayness. Like, maybe right now the back of your hands are okay. No matter how angry you are, there's some okayness in your, uh, available in the present moment. No matter how sad you are, there's something that's fundamentally okay about the uh, maybe the degree of gravity that there is in the local terrestrial environment or air pressure or sound environment. There's, there's kind of okayness here. And as you notice the okayness, the acceptability of conditions that are, that are also here, your attention is drawn away from what's bothersome or what's uh, unwholesome. If you tune into the to the actual peace and um, acceptability of the physical environment and the way the body feels and the parts of the mind that don't seem to be that uh, upset, then you're you're creating space, if you will, mental space around your mood or your thought stream or whatever else it's, that might be causing you distress. And you, got to, you start to get a sense of how uh, limited and artificial and conditioned and future or past oriented, that is to say, not oriented towards the present, this actual present moment right now, that that mental content uh, concerns itself with. And it's, it's essential unrealness because of that. Mental content, which is concerned with the past, is concerned with something that's no longer here, no longer real, no longer happening. And mental content that's concerned with the future is concerned with something that doesn't exist and has not yet existed and may never exist. The only thing that's actually happening is happening right now. And yes, sometimes there are distressful situations, distressing situations, uh, difficult interactions with other people. And one can't expect to have full mindfulness and clear comprehension under all circumstances all the time. And the Buddha is not demanding that we do such a thing. That's uh, maybe something that our haunts are able to do. But what we can do is we can look at what's, what just happened 
or what happened a few minutes ago, or what happened yesterday, and uh, play it back in our minds and see how one thing led to another and what we said and did in, in response. And ask ourselves whether or not that was um, the way we want it to go in future similar situations, whether there's something we can learn from what just happened. Something for the sake of the teaching, for the sake of the Buddha, for the sake of our own welfare and happiness and the happiness of others. If you make a mistake with another human being, there's a way out. You don't have to suffer from that mistake for the rest of your life. You just recognize, oh, that didn't work. That wasn't the, the best thing for me to do. You hurt somebody. The best thing for you to do is to recognize that that happened. Acknowledge it. And then if you can do anything to make amends, ask for forgiveness. Patch it up somehow if you can. And then make the resolution to not to try to do better in the future. And again, this is putting yourself in the driver's seat. Rather than being the victim of circumstances, and rather than reinforcing unhelpful habits of the mind, you build new habits, you make new intentions, and those new habits and intentions displace the old ones. The mind ultimately is simply made of a bunch of habits. And the basis of progress and practice is wholesomeness or wholesome states of mind. And those are just trained in. They're just, ha they're just new habits. So a, a tremendous amount of what we do in training is abandoning our old bad habits and cultivate new good habits to substitute for them. And there's, there's opportunities every day, maybe even every minute of every day, to... Uh, to incline the mind in that direction. Whenever the mind's not preoccupied with some pressing task, it tends to fall into one of its habits. Reveries, memories, worry, whatever it does habitually. And there's an opportunity right there to find a way to use that time rather than let the mind's idle time reinforce uh, random habits, random conditioning. Uh, incline the mind in the direction of doing something useful. Useful in the sense of like beneficial for your, your future well-being. And this, this understanding about kama that we get from this teaching, it's understood that every conscious moment is a moment of both reaping old kama, reaping karmic results, and making new kama that will be re that will be inherited in the future. So this reflection that we do: I am born of my kama, heir to my kama, abide supported by my kama related to my kama. It's pointing out that we're, we're so close to our kama that, that it's like our parents. It's like our mother and father and um, uh, we're, we go around with it uh, joined like Siamese twins almost. We're always 
uh, inheriting our kama. Uh, we rest on it. We go to sleep with our kama. We wake up in the morning with our kama. It's always there. And we're either uh, improving it or we're, uh, we're not. You know, there's, it's one of these things that can, it, it, it doesn't just stay static. It's always, it's very, very dynamic. So you're either adding to it or you're subtracting from it. So out of consideration for your own well-being, uh, a wise person looks at their kama or their the comic opportunities that each moment presents and tries to maximize the benefit. Because that's the way out. That's the way out of this mind that's, that's beset by dukkha, by unsatisfactoriness. It's not to die and go to heaven. It's to make such good kama that the truth is able to be seen, that the mind is able to settle down and accept reality the way it actually is rather than the way the mind imagines that it is. And so this is a developmental process that's built out of very small acts, very small mental acts, very small choices, moment to moment. The choice to simply indulge in an unhelpful reverie is a choice. Uh, the choice to not do that, but instead, um, oh, recite the metta sutta mentally, or um, clean something. I mean, it's almost anything you can do that might be wholesome. There's, there's an infinite set of possibilities. It's good to have several close to your, to your fingertips. So you've got to go to a wholesome activity that you can engage in if you don't know what else to do. Um, I like to recite suttas. That works for me. I, I, I can recommend it. If you memorize a sutta and you know you're standing in line waiting for something, you can just sit there and kind of. Hmm. You can just kind of recite the sutta yourself and make yourself happy, uh, rather than think about you know something bad that happened to you once, or how unfair things are, or whatever. Because that's that's just wasting your time. Uh, so so that's a that's that's the practitioner's duty, right? If you take the the Buddha's teaching seriously, then. Part of, your, part of your, your job or your obligation or your duty to the teacher is to uh, always be on uh, always be on duty, on guard, on on uh, always be active. Right? You're, you're not really ever going to take a day off from being a Buddhist practitioner if you're taking it seriously, because your life is at stake. Everything's at stake. Your happiness is at stake. The welfare of all beings is going to be affected by the choices that you make. So when you wake up in the morning, if, you're, if the mind's happy and joyful, then make an effort to support that and cultivate the causes that continue that to happen. And if the mind's miserable and, and sulky and unhappy, then make effort. You know, put effort into trying to uh, improve that condition. And there again, there are so many things that can be done that are wholesome. And in the social environment that we find ourselves in, there's a tremendous number of potentials that involve other people. 
And so we can use the fact that we're stuck with these other people to make wholesome kama. That's, that's fantastic, isn't it? It's like a re complete reversal of, a, of the dilemma of having to put up with all these people. Rather than seeing them as a burden, we see them as, as a, a field of merit, you know, a field of possibility. What can I do to uh, accommodate that other person's foibles? What can I do to um, be kind to this, this person over here? What can I do to help? What can I do to please? Um, because those things, when you do them, if you're not do them in, doing them out of, out of a sense of obligation or you know, servile uh, 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 obedience, you're, but you're doing them out of a, a, an actual considered concern for your own mental health, uh, then the things that you be, you're doing will be uh, will, will give you joy when you reflect on them, and that joyful state of mind is very very wholesome. So all these people around you that are that have you know, traditionally caused you so much trouble, they're actually uh, fantastic opportunities coming up over and over again. And then when you find yourself alone, again this this troublesome mind. Uh, it too can become a fantastic opportunity. And, and when you start to frame your experience that way, you start to see all the possibilities for making good come up. And, and the desire comes up to not miss those opportunities, not, not neglect them. Uh, then you're really, uh, you kind of get into a groove, uh, kind of a, a track of uh, almost habitually uh, motivating yourself to do what's wholesome. And it gets easier and easier over time to the point where you can't really imagine doing anything else. You know, it seems ridiculous to do anything else. And, uh, and there's a lot of relief in that. There's a lot of freedom in that. A lot of benefit in that. And this is just, this is just the way the, the path progresses. It's very, very natural, very organic, very reasonable. Not mystical at all. Uh, it's just straightforward cause and effect. So, I'll leave that for your reflection. Handamayang Dhammakataya Sadhukarang Dhammase Sadhu So it's...